Yeah. Yeah. You know what? If you've ever lived in another state, you know the words of that song are just flat out true. All right? Especially if you lived in Texas. All right? It's just better. It's just better. That's what we've been learning uh, in this series is that we've been pursuing a better way, a better way than the one we had. And what we've been trying to do in this series called Tracks is figure out what are some things that if we'll hang on to these things... These things will help keep us parallel to who Jesus is and what he's done in our lives. And if we can keep on track with where he wants us to go, then we'll find a better way. Not an easier way, but definitely a better way. And so what we've been doing is we've been exploring some of those things that we value very, very highly around here. The first one is this thing called biblical authority or or truth. In other words, we said a while back in this series, if we ever let go of the word of God and stop teaching the Bible, then we really don't have anything else to say and we should just kind of close up the doors. Now, the problem is, the truth that's revealed in the Bible is a truth that none of us has lived up to perfectly. Anybody? No, we haven't. And so uh, we need this thing called grace. And so the second week we talked about relational intimacy. And the way that we can have a relationship with God is not based on being good or following rules or being religious. It's based on a free gift called grace that God gave us in the form of His Son Jesus when He died on a cross for our sins. And Jim talks about that cross tie that keeps us in line with God and keeps us in a relationship with God. And then a few weeks ago, we also talked about this thing called authentic community, right? And around here, we have a, a catchphrase. We've had t-shirts for it that it just says this, me too. In other words, you got your stuff in your life and I got my stuff in my life. Um, we're all about five seconds away from tanking our life yet again. And so we're not going to throw stones at each other. I just look at you and go, me too. And you look at me and go, me too. What if we pursued following after Jesus together? Uh, What if we did this together? Just maybe it would be better. That's authentic community. And then last week, Jim talked about this thing called gifted service. In other words, we want to represent um, who Jesus is, both in purpose and in personality. And we've all been given gifts been given different gifts and ways that we can serve within the church. And then hundreds of you stepped up and and that's what we're doing around here. And that brings us to this week uh, where we're going to talk about our fifth value, which is excellent environments. And I got some time to kind of think about this. A couple weeks ago, uh, I went on a vacation with my family. And uh, the reason I do that, you'll find out soon enough. But um, every year, uh, I get invited to speak at some different camps and conferences and stuff like that. And I always try to take my family to one of those. And usually what I've done is I've taken my family... Uh, with me to Arizona in July. No better way to say thank you or I love you to your family than Arizona in July. Uh, So this year I decided let's not do that. Let's go to a place God intended for people to live. And uh, I was invited to speak at this place uh, down in Durango at Fort Lewis College for a conference down there. Now if you've ever been down there, it's it's just beautiful down at that end of the state. And I've been there a few times but my family hadn't. And one of the things that we've wanted to do since we lived out here is just see more of the state, take the kids to do some fun stuff and things like that. So Allie and I kind of had this collective brainstorming moment where we came up with a brilliant idea. Let's leave a few days early, drive to Durango, and camp out along the way with a six-year-old, a four-year-old, and a one-year-old. Brilliant idea. Um, And so we pack up the van. It's not my van. It's my wife's van. All right? Um, We pack up the van. Uh, we get in the car, and honestly, for the first couple hours, it goes really, really well. Like, the older two are getting along with each other. We didn't have to put on a movie or anything. They're just kind of hanging out and discussing life and things like that. Uh, the baby's just making a few interesting sounds and, and sleeping most of the way. And we get to Glenwood Springs, and the first sign of trouble is not 
anything to do with my kids. It's actually my wife who had to go to the bathroom really badly, went into the subway. The ladies' room was out of order. She got in line for another uh, bathroom, and some lady tried to cut in line, and my wife almost got in a fight with this lady, which was <laughs> awesome, all right? Because usually it's me that's like kind of contentious and things like that. My wife, everybody's like, she's so sweet and so great. How did you get hurt? I'm like, look, except when she has to pee, apparently. So... Uh, <laughs> So we, we, we go to the park, we let the kids run around, let my wife blow off some steam, and we get back in the car and we go out I-70 and we just keep going. And if you've ever just kept going on I-70, you know that eventually the landscape kind of changes and it becomes kind of desert-like and really rocky, it starts to look more like kind of a New Mexico, Arizona type feel. And, and we get to this place where we're just not happy being in the car with each other anymore. You ever been there? All right. Um, we're just ready to like give the kids away to people. And we enter into this place called Palisade. Have you seen this place? It's, it's this oasis. It's unbelievable. It's where they grow all the peaches and grapes. It's, it's just on the western slope. It's just unbelievable. And there's wine tasting on every corner. And we're in a minivan with children. All right, And everything within us wants to just adjourn this vacation, park the car, find someone to hang with the kids and go sit on the corner and taste wine the rest of the day, I'm telling you. But we just had to keep driving through this place that was just beckoning us in until we finally arrived where we were going to camp, which is another beautiful place called Uray. All right, We get to Uray, we set up camp. And we've got this huge, enormous tent. We've got uh, the pack and play fits in it. Like you can do jumping jacks inside this tent, all right? So we've got the baby who's going to go in the pack and play. The two older kids are going to sleep on opposite sides of the tent. And then me and Allie. And about 3 o'clock in the morning, I'm laying there wide awake. Uh, because the baby wouldn't sleep in the pack and play. The baby would only sleep between us, which is a big problem because we're on an air mattress. Which means that if one of us even moves a little bit, much less turns over, we launch the baby into, <laughs> into the air and the crying commences. And so at about 3 o'clock in the morning, as I'm sitting there like this trying not to move at all, I'm having this conversation, I think, with myself and with God, going, why in the world did we voluntarily do this to ourselves? We have a house, we have beds, people for generations have worked so that they can eat and sleep indoors, and we have voluntarily gone outdoors with our three small children. I'm so stupid. I'm having this moment, like in the tent. So we endure that for about 48 hours, we camp out twice, then we go uh, down to Durango, and I'm going to speak for this, this event down there, and they give me keys to this brand new dorm that no college students have ever lived in, which is the only kind of dorm you ever want to stay in, by the way. Uh, and so we get in there, and it's brand new. There's, there's bedrooms for every child. There's, there's air conditioning. There's a, a television with like 10,000 channels on it. There's a shower. There's a toilet. Thank God for a toilet. You know, there's, there's all these things. And I'm telling you, we felt like we arrived at the Hilton. It was just excellent. We could have stayed there forever. So I speak for a couple nights at the conference, and it's time to pack up the van and head home. And we decide we're going to go back a different way. And Allie and I, because we're so effective at this so far, decide to get together and have another little brainstorming session. And yet another bright idea comes forth. And that bright idea is, hey, on the way home, let's take the kids to the Great Sand Dunes. All right? Anybody ever been to the Great Sand Dunes? I have to. All right? So no, no excuses here. Uh, we get our kids there in the middle of the day. It's 1230. All right? And we arrive there. And to make matters worse, Eli has just fallen asleep, okay? So I don't know if you've ever had to wake up a four-year-old and get them to actually function like a human being, but it doesn't work, all right? So we wake up Eli, and we take him out onto the sand dunes, and he's looking around, and he looks at us and goes, where's the water? Because he thinks he's at a beach, all right? There's all this sand, the ocean should be nearby. And so we go, 
Eli, there is, there is no water other than that really muddy spot you just walked through over there they call a stream. Uh, there is no water. And he looks around and you can see him kind of processing in his young brain. And he's going, why the crap are we here? It's, it's hot and there's sand everywhere. This is insanity. And so uh, we, I've got Silas on, in, my, in my backpack. He's a year old. I've got Eli and then I've got Landry who's got her camel back on. And she's all excited to like go to the top of the sand dunes. All right. So we take off like marching up these sand dunes because that's what is best with little children in the heat of the day. Just walk uphill for a long period of time. So we walk uphill with them and Eli eventually starts to just have an absolute breakdown because sand's in his shoes he hates it here the whole nine yards and finally he sits down and just erupts and there's a moment with your kids where you realize he's serious like he really isn't going to move like he's not going to go any further and right about that time it got really windy and so all this sand blows into silas's eyes and so i have a one-year-old screaming right here in my ear i have eli down here screaming right here and it's at this moment that i do what dads do best i make an executive decision we're leaving, right? So I yell, we're leaving. There's hundreds of people around. It's wonderful. Uh, we're leaving. And my daughter, who's, you know, mountain woman, going to trudge up the, the, the sand dunes, turns around and looks at me and goes, I don't want to leave. And like breaks into tears and just like starts running towards me, flailing and screaming and crying. So now I have Landry flailing and screaming and crying, Eli on the ground screaming and crying, and Silas on my back screaming and crying. And at this point, I hope you're wondering, where was your wife? That's a great question, because at this point along the way, she decided this would be a great moment to step back and take a picture. So there you have it. Yeah. My my favorite part of the picture is the placement of my hand on Eli's head, because as a parent, you have these moments where you don't know what else to do except go, stop it, you know, just stop it. You don't know what else to do. And so... Right after Allie takes the picture, I pick up Eli, and I have to walk all the way back to the sand dunes, uh, down the sand dunes with him, carrying him with Silas on my back. And the whole time, I kid you not, Eli's whispering in my ear, why did you bring me to the desert, Daddy? People die in the desert. (laughs) Like, bro, I don't know. (laughs) You're You're exactly right. I'm a horrible father. I've scarred you for life for one of many times. Write it down. Tell your kids one day, you know? So why do I tell you all that? One, because I need therapy. Uh, two, two, because in thinking about the contrast between excellent environments and not so excellent environments, uh, like Palisade versus Sand Dunes, I think there's a lot we can, can learn. And the truth of the matter is a lot of us have had church experiences much like Eli's experience in the Sand Dunes, right? Where you leave kicking and screaming, why did you bring me there? People die in places like that, right? People get abused in places like that. People get mistreated and yelled at in places like that. Whatever your experience has been, many of us know what that feels like. And so around here, here's the deal. We're not trying to just not create a bad church. We're not trying to avoid creating a bad church. We're trying to create an excellent church. Trying to be a part of an excellent church. So what is that all about? And I think we can actually learn a lot about what that would look like by studying a little bit about this guy named John. If you've got your Bibles, actually turn to the book of John, chapter 1. We're going to start there. It's also in your programs. But we're not going to study about John who wrote the book of John. We're going to study about John the Baptist. So this is very confusing. Um, John the Baptist was nicknamed John the Baptist because he 
baptized lots of people. He was also uh, Jesus' first cousin. For those of you who've been kind of tracking with us in the Bible reading challenge through the book of Luke, you may remember way back at the beginning of the book of Luke, uh, we got to read about the circumstances surrounding John the Baptist's birth. All right, So he's Jesus' cousin. He's about six months older than him. And, and John the Baptist is not your typical church person. All right, he is not a religious dude. He, he lived out in the desert. Um, he wore camel hair, which is a great summertime outfit, by the way. Um, he ate locusts and honey. He was just kind of an off-the-beaten-path kind of guy. And in the Old Testament, there were a lot of kind of prophecies about John saying that before the Messiah would come, in other words, before the one who was going to reconnect God's people back to him, that's that value two thing, before that person would come, there would be a forerunner, a front runner, and his job was described many times throughout the Bible. One of them is found in the book of Mark. Look at this on the screens. It is written in Isaiah the prophet, I will send my messenger ahead of you who will prepare your way. A voice of one calling in the desert, prepare the way for the Lord, make straight paths for him. And that was John's job description, to prepare the way for the Lord. Right now, some of you know the Tour de France is going on, and it never ceases to amaze me that in the Tour de France, there's elite cyclists who have entire teams And if you're on that team, your job is to be a front runner, to go way out in front of the pack, to sucker other people into following you, to prepare the way for the elite cyclist to win the race. All the training, all the work is simply so he can win. That's amazing to me. That's an amazing level of humility. And what we're going to learn is, is that this guy named John the Baptist had that level of humility. So look at this. In John chapter 1, pick it up in verse 19. Now this was John's testimony when the Jews of Jerusalem sent priests and Levites, those are religious guys, to ask him who he was. He did not fail to confess, but confessed freely, I'm not the Christ. They asked him, well then who are you? Are you Elijah? Elijah was this famous prophet from the Old Testament. He said, I'm not. Are you the prophet? They expected a prophet kind of like Moses to return one day. He said, no, that's not me. Finally they said, who are you? Give us an answer to take back to those who sent us. What do you say about yourself? John replied in the words of Isaiah the prophet, Well, I'm the voice of the one calling in the desert. Make straight the way for the Lord. Now some Pharisees, these are more religious guys, who had been sent, questioned him some more. Why then do you baptize if you're not the Christ, nor Elijah, nor the prophet? In other words, then why do you have any authority? Why do you think you can tell us what to do? See, here's the thing. The religious guys are very, very offended by John. Because up until this point, this thing called baptism that he's been doing has been reserved only for people who were not Jewish who wanted to convert to Judaism. Because Jewish people believed that that Gentiles, non-Jewish people, were unclean. So they had to go through this ceremonial washing before they would accept them as one of them. But what John's been doing is going to the religious people, to all the Jewish people and their leaders and saying, you need to be baptized because your hearts are unclean. And this doesn't go over very well. And specifically, these religious guys that he's talking to, if you read further on, he calls them lots of names. He calls them things like brood of vipers. It's kind of a cool way of saying things. Very offensive thing to say because in Jesus' culture, snakes were symbolic of evil and deception. So he's saying, listen, you religious church leaders, you're very evil and deceptive and you're dangerous to other people. See, John was not very popular with church people. Now, look at how this discourse kind of wraps up. Pick it up in verse 20, 26. I baptize with water, John replied, but among you stands one you do not know. He's the one who comes after me, the thongs of whose sandals I am not worthy to untie. He's going, listen, you guys are all worried about who I am. You don't need to worry about who I am. You need to worry about the one that comes after me. He's the guy. I'm just preparing the way for him. So John's job was to make straight paths, to prepare a way for Jesus. 
for Jesus to do what? Well, for Jesus to do what he does best, which is what? Change lives. See, John knew that he couldn't change anybody. That wasn't in his job description. That's only in Jesus' job description. See, that's the principle that underlies this entire value that we're talking about called excellent environments. We have to recognize that we can't change anyone. It's not in my job description. It's not in your job description. It's only and always been in Jesus' job description. All we can do is make straight paths. In other words, to smooth out the road so that people can meet Jesus. Now, how do we do that becomes the question. One of the big things we've got to do is we've got to keep it simple and continue to point to Jesus. See, that's what John did. Pick it up. Just skip down a couple verses to verse 29 in chapter 1. The next day, John saw Jesus coming toward him and said, Look, the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. This is the one I meant when I said a man who comes after me has surpassed me because he was before me. I myself didn't know him, but the reason I came baptizing with water was that he might be revealed to Israel. Then John gave this testimony, and he's going to reflect on when he baptized Jesus now. Listen to this. I saw the Spirit come down from heaven as a dove and remain on him. I would not have known him except that the one who sent me to baptize with water told me. The man on whom you see the Spirit come down and remain is he who will baptize with the Holy Spirit. I have seen and I testify that this is the Son of God. The next day, John was there with two of his disciples when he saw Jesus passing by again. And he said, look, the Lamb of God. When the two disciples heard him say this, they followed Jesus. Turning around, Jesus saw them following and said, what do you want? Jesus, they said, Rabbi, which means teacher, where are you staying? Well, come, he replied, and you will see. See what John's doing? Over and over again. Look at him, look at him, look at him. There's Jesus. He's pointing to Jesus. Go to Jesus. Follow Jesus. That's what he does. That's his job, and that's our job. You see, the other way that we say this value around here, we say it all the time, is we're simply trying to create a space where people can bump into Jesus. That's all we're trying to do. In other words, we have to know who we are not. We are not Jesus. Our job is simply to point people to him, which means that we have to relentlessly keep religious roadblocks out of the way and barriers out of the way to keep the road smooth to Jesus. You see, it's really easy for churches to unknowingly create barriers and obstacles. Last week we opened the service with Crazy Train by Ozzy Osbourne and I was sitting right over there and I thought, you know what? It's really easy for churches to go off the rails on a crazy train. And churches just start doing kind of weird things and they set up these big hoops that people have to jump through. You know what I'm talking about. It's you know, places where there's like a dress code, written or unwritten. You know, whether you've got to dress up or dress down. Either way, if there's an unwritten dress code, and people, that's a barrier for people. Or maybe this one sounds familiar. If it has to be quiet all the time. When I was a kid, um, church always seemed like the place where I had to wear the clothes I didn't want to wear and go sit for a long time and have old people yell at me, telling me to be quiet and not to run. And any time I ever asked, why do I have to be quiet or why can't I run? It was always, because we're in the Lord's house. And one time I remember going, can I go back to my house? Because in my house I can wear stuff that I like to wear, I can talk at a normal level, and I get to run every now and then, you know? But can I do that? See, if there's a, if there's a, a barrier for people, they're just not going to show up. If there's a secret language, you know what I'm talking about? It's, it's people who talk in Christianese. I was speaking for a conference recently in the MC of the evening. It was like every other sentence had to be capped with, and praise Jesus, and praise Jesus, and amen, and amen. And I just got to thinking, if I hadn't been around the church world for a while, I would just think this, there was something wrong with this man. It just sounds weird. It's a barrier for people. Or in general, let's just say, you know, doing weird stuff. Churches have a tendency to do weird stuff. I mean, whoever said there's no such thing as a bad idea was an idiot. 
There are such things as bad ideas. There are things we absolutely shouldn't do. Listen, we have people approach us all the time with their elaborate plans and ideas and things that we should start doing. Now, not all the time, but oftentimes, these are just self-promoting people trying to use a big church as their platform for religious propaganda. And we have to keep saying no. No. Because otherwise, everything gets very muddy and everything gets very distracting and the person who gets left in the lurch is Jesus. Is Jesus. See, if we're going to keep pointing people to Jesus, then we have to get some things out of the way and we have to keep some things out of the way. And a lot of times that means really making religious people mad. See, Jesus described religious people. He said, listen, religious people are the ones who, uh, they're very proficient at pointing out what everyone else is doing wrong. He said, listen, they'll heap heavy burdens on people, but they won't shoulder any of the load. No, they would never do that. Religious people, Jesus called hypocrites, which in, in his language was the same word for actor. In other words, he would say things like, man, you guys, you're so good at putting up this really happy front and you're really great at putting on your church face but on the inside you're rotten and you're decaying and you're toxic he said you guys you guys jockey for the the best seats in the synagogue and you stand up and you say these long really pretty religious prayers and you make sure you sing extra loud so everyone can hear your beautiful voice you want everybody to think you're spiritual but you would never venture into sinners houses you never hang out with people like that. Jesus said, listen, no, you guys, are, you guys are more interested in following a list of rules than having a relationship with, with God. See, that's why we, we try so hard around here to keep religious, church-hopping people with all their ideas out of this place. I mean, Jim tried ten times in his sermon last week because they want to worry about things and promote things and create things that distract people from Jesus. See, John the Baptist was not very popular with religious folks. Jesus certainly wasn't. They murdered him. So if at any point we become attractive and inoffensive to religious people, that'll be a sure sign that we as a church have gone off the rails on a crazy train. We've lost our way. Lost our way. See, if at any point this place becomes more comfortable for religious people than irreligious people, we're way off track. In fact, I think a great measuring stick of how well we're doing is how uncomfortable we make religious folks and how much finger-pointing and name-calling and emails we draw from religious people. That would be a great measuring stick that we're doing exactly what we're supposed to be doing because that's exactly what happened to Jesus. So we've got to keep it simple. We've got to point to Jesus and we've got to create a space where people can bump into Him. Now the question becomes, what does that space need to look like? Uh, flip over, it's probably just one more page over in your Bible to John 3, verse 22. I think there's more we can learn from John the Baptist on this. Look at this. After this, Jesus and his disciples went out into the Judean countryside where he spent some time with them and baptized. Now John also was baptizing at Anon near Salim because there was plenty of water there. And people were constantly coming to be baptized. This was before John was put in prison. An argument developed between some of John's disciples and a certain Jew over the matter of ceremonial washing. They came to John and said to him, Rabbi, that man who was with you on the other side of the Jordan, the one you talked about, well, he's baptizing every, and everyone's going to him. So again, a religious argument breaks out. And John's disciples, who've watched some of their own in their minds switch teams to Jesus' team, are really, really ticked off. Because they've been the best show in town up until this point, but now everybody's going over to Jesus. And so they're actually dealing with this thing called envy and jealousy. See, I don't know if you know this or not, but envy and jealousy still abound in the church world, unfortunately. 
I don't go to a lot of like pastors' conferences and stuff like that because honestly, at the end of the day, they end up becoming peeing contests. They do. I, the question that's always, uh, the first thing someone asks, how many people are showing up, how much money are they giving? Those are the two questions pe- pastors ask. Except for some very close friends of mine that I have in ministry in other places, uh, no pastor has ever asked me a question like this. Tell me about some people's lives that are being changed in your church. Tell me about what Jesus is doing in your church. It's really sad, isn't it? See, it's very easy to go off the rails, and John's disciples are off the rails, and John's going to try to get them back on track. Look at what he does in verse 27. To this John replied, A man can receive only what is given him from heaven. You yourselves can testify that I said, I am not the Christ, but am sent ahead of him. The bride belongs to the bridegroom. The friend who attends the bridegroom waits and listens for him and is full of joy when he hears the bridegroom's voice. That joy is mine, and it's now complete. He, Jesus, must become greater, and I must become less. John's saying, listen, okay, boys, listen to me clearly. Look right here in my eyes, okay? My job is to point to Jesus. And people are going to Jesus. Which means, I'm doing my job. So if you were ever trying to help me with my job, then that's what we were here for, was to point to Jesus. So if people are going to Him, that's a good thing, boys. This is what we've been hoping for. This is what we've been praying for. This is what we were called to do. But He knows that that's not going to register. And so He paints a picture for them that He knows they will understand. Look at this back in verse 29. Read it again. The bride belongs to the bridegroom... The friend who attends the bridegroom waits and listens for him and is full of joy when he hears the bridegroom's voice. That joy is mine and is now complete. You see, in Jesus' day, picking your best man for your wedding was a really important deal. All right, The best man had a bigger role than just a toast and passing out on the dance floor at the end of the evening. All right, There was more than that. All right, In Jesus' day, uh, the best man would actually be one of the people who was primarily responsible for making the plans for the wedding. Can you imagine? That's, that was his job. He was kind of a forerunner for the groom. He made the way smooth so the groom could have a great wedding. Now, more importantly than that, in Jesus' culture, uh, weddings would go on sometimes for almost a week. Night after night, the celebration would go on. And in the Old Testament specifically, what they would do is they would, the groom would have the party, the wedding, at his, his father's land. And he would actually add a room, a big room, onto his father's house. And that's where he would live with his bride. So they'd have the wedding and the party right there on their father's ground. Now, in Jesus' day, no one had any land because it had all been taken away by the Romans. All they had were little shanty town villages. And so the weddings in Jesus' day would take place either in the town square or off in the countryside somewhere. And so the party would go on for a while, but eventually the bride would go home to where she was going to live with her husband, but typically the groom would have to stay longer to make sure that he said uh, thank you to all the guests and fulfilled all his obligations. And so this bride would have to walk or ride sometimes several blocks in the city or several miles from the countryside back into the village to her home in the middle of the night in a Roman-occupied territory where women were often raped by Roman soldiers and brides were still often stolen. And so when you picked your best man, you picked the person you trusted most on the planet because his job was to escort your new bride back to your home to lock her inside the house and to stand guard and keep her safe until you got there that evening. So do you see... Why it's so important to pick the right best man. 
And so, picture it for a second. The best man escorts her home. She gets inside safely. He locks the door. He stands guard outside. It's 2 or 3 o'clock in the morning. He's popping five-hour energy. He can hear the sound of the party off in the distance. He's trying his best to stay awake. And about 4 o'clock in the morning, he hears some footsteps off in the distance. And the party has died down. He can't hear it anymore. And he stands up alert, wondering who it might be, ready to fend off anyone who might try to harm her. And then he hears a familiar voice. He'd know that voice anywhere. It's his best friend. His best friend says, don't worry, it's me. And he walks up very close to him and grabs him by the shoulders and says, thanks, bro. I trust you more than anyone else on the planet. Job well done. Now get the heck out of my way. (laughs) Right? And the best man walks home full of joy, knowing he's done his job. Listen, listen, all right? God is trusting us, folks, to create a safe place where people can encounter him. And it's our job to protect them to keep them safe. And here's the thing, we have to be willing to fight for that. We have to be willing to fight for that or else he'll stop trusting us to do that. And you know what? I wouldn't blame him, would you? I would not trust some wimpy coward with no backbone to be the one to escort my bride home and and protect her, would you? No, that's why we have to aggressively defend the lost, the hurting, the broken, the irreligious from the religious. We have to be willing to defend people against those who would point fingers and condemn and throw stones. We have to be willing to make religious people really, really angry in an effort to protect those God loves most. Why? Because God's given us a job and it's to protect those he loves most. That's why many of us are in this room. Because you've been kept safe and there was a safe place where you could hear that God loves you. Isn't that why you're here? See, one of the ways that the Bible describes the role of an overseer or a pastor in the church is as a, as a shepherd. And then just a few pages later in John, John chapter 10, Jesus is described as the good shepherd. You know what the job description of a, she- a shepherd is? It's very simple. Keep the sheep safe. Which means that as a shepherd, you've got to be willing to shoot wolves or die trying. Right? Which is why we're not afraid to point at things in our culture that are written or said that aren't true. Whether they're said by people who claim to be Christians or not. Because here's the thing. Things that aren't true when embraced by people and applied in their lives actually hurt people. So we have to try to protect people from embracing things that aren't true. So we're not afraid to tell religious people to leave because left alone they'll start to devour our people. We got a job to do, and our job is to create a safe place where people won't be attacked by religious people, pointed at and whispered at by self-righteous snobs, looked down upon by those who think they've done it all right, or preyed upon by self-promoting people with their own religious agendas and programs. And it happens in churches all the time. If you think that we can't go off the rails because we're somehow above it, we're not. That's why we have this series every summer where we talk about this is what we have to be, this is where we have to go, and this is what we have to hang on to. So, how do we do this? How do we create a safe place for people to bump into Jesus? And the first thing is we have to be safe as individuals before we can be safe as a, as a body of believers. So how do we do that? Well, a couple things. Number one, I think we have to pursue being real, not religious. I had someone tell me the other day, usually when people hear what I do, they finally ask, well, what do you do? I tell them I'm a pastor, and they go, oh, you know what? I'm not very religious, and I always say the same thing. Me neither. 
I'm not very religious at all because religion means checking off a list of things you've done right or things you haven't done that are wrong in an attempt to earn God's approval, which means being a slave to a bunch of rules, and I don't want to live that way, do you? I don't know of anybody who says, I want to be a slave to the rule book for the rest of my life. No. So we have to pursue being real, not religious. We have to pursue being safe, not condemning. So I have to ask myself hard questions. Am I the type of person that people are willing to reveal the truth of who they really are to? Or do people feel like they have to put up a false front and put on a mask in order for me to accept them? And so we have to pursue being safe, not condemning. We have to pursue being truthful, not fake. Which means this. One of my favorite lines in, in Narnia is a question about Aslan where they say, is he safe? And the response is, no, he's not safe, but he's good. See, in other words, the territory we're heading on to or into on this journey that we're on, the path we're on, the tracks we're going down are going to take us into some really scary places. You've been here more than a couple weeks. You know that we go to some scary places. We deal with some scary stuff. We, we deal with some hard things that have to do with our hearts and our lives. So it has to be a safe place where we can do that in a good way. So we have to be truthful, not fake. So I have to ask myself a question. Am I the type of person that in love will tell people what they need to hear versus what they want to hear? The Bible says it this way. Uh, Wounds from a friend can be trusted, but an enemy multiplies kisses. So do I just tell people what they want to hear, or am I willing to tell people what they need to hear because I love them so much? So we have to pursue being truthful, not fake. So that's us as individuals. What about us together, collectively, as a church? What's that look like? I think there's some things we have to keep hanging on to. Number one, I think we've got to keep hanging on to this idea of teaching real truth in real ways to real people. It's always got to be raw and open and honest around here. Like, if any point along the way, on this journey, it becomes unsafe for me to stand up here and say, listen, um, a couple weeks ago when I took my family on vacation, there were points along the way where I felt like a horrible father. Because I lost my temper with my kids. I was unkind for my wife. Uh, to my wife. I was bitter at times because I wasn't getting my way. And I had selfish aspirations for the way that I wanted vacation to go. And so I made things miserable on the rest of my family many times over over the course of a week. If it ever becomes unsafe for me to stand up here and say that, if it ever becomes unsafe for people like Jim and I to stand up here and go, guess what, folks? Sometimes life sucks at the pastor's house too. Then it's not safe for any of us anymore. Is it? So we have to always be willing to talk about the hard stuff and to venture into the dangerous territory around here. Why? Because life is lived in the hard stuff. Have you ever noticed that? That's where we all exist. So if at any point Jim and I get our teeth whitened and grow flowing brown mullets, which would be a miracle for Jim, and start wearing, and start wearing suits and start sticking our thumb in the air and going, man, just have enough faith and Jesus will make you happy all the time. Please gather your things flip us the bird and walk out the door. And I'm not kidding. Please. Because it's a bunch of nonsense and we have to keep up with real truth and real ways to real people. And it's always got to be engaging and good. I don't know why people think it's okay for church to be mediocre. I don't understand that. I hope we always have talented musicians on stage that can do that Peter Frampton thing that Rich did. You know what I'm talking about? I hope we always have talented communicators in our different environments that engage with people in ways that they can actually understand. I hope we always are able to hire really sharp people with great ideas and a lot of great work ethic and abilities. 
Let me let you in on something, all right? Uh, four years ago this month, I moved here, okay? And just a few short weeks after I moved here, I got to teach here for the first time, all right? And here's the thing um, most communicators know, all right? That you know as a communicator that with a new group of people, you get one shot. They will give you one chance, and if you blow it, they will not listen to you a second time. And in that one shot, they'll give you 30 seconds at the beginning of your talk, and they'll decide subconsciously or consciously whether they're going to listen to you for the rest of the time. Some of you checked out on me 28 minutes ago, all right? That's the way it works. So there's a lot of pressure involved there, especially when you go to a new place. And so it's time for me to teach for the first time at this place, and Jim calls me inside, and he's going to give me kind of a little, like, you know, wisdom, you know, a little pep talk. And so I'm ready. I'm like, yeah, man, tell Yoda, tell me, you know, what, what do I need to know? And he sits me down and he goes, hey, um, just don't suck. <laughs> okay, all right. And you may be going, you know what, that's, that's crude or callous or insensitive. You know what I'd call it? Biblical. Biblical. Why would you say that? Well, because the Bible says whatever you do, work at it with all your heart as though working for the Lord and not for men. Colossians 3, 23. Translation, whatever you do, work at it really hard. Do it really well. Don't suck. So everything we do around here has to be engaging. It's got to be relevant. It's got to be quality. Why? Because it's the most important thing on the planet. To point people to Jesus is the most important thing we could ever do with our lives. We've been given a job around here to create a safe place for people that God loves most to bump into Jesus. And if it sucks, listen, people would rather go to the mountains and I don't blame them. Me too. Wouldn't you? So it's got to be engaging and good. And it's got to be different. That John the Baptist guy was different. He was a different kind of guy. That first church in the, in the, in the book of Acts, chapter 2, we've looked at throughout this series, was different. In the middle of a culture where everyone locked their doors and kept to themselves and didn't share anything with one another, this first church opened their doors, put each other's feet under their tables, shared their food, shared their stuff, shared their money, and lived differently. And people from the outside looking in looked over the fence and said, I want that. That's different. I want to live that way. It's a freaky church at first, and... I think Flatirons is a freaky church now, and it needs to stay that way. See, people don't come here for more of the same watered-down religion and self-help. They come here for life-giving truth and freedom-affording grace. Isn't that why you're here? Finally, it's got to always be all about Jesus. It has to always be only about Jesus. John the Baptist said, He, Jesus, must increase, I must decrease. If it ever becomes about Jim, about Scott, about the sound or the lights or the band or the building, Gather your things and go. It always has to be all about Jesus. This place has to remain an oasis in a dry and thirsty land. We have to keep pointing to Jesus because he said, I'm the one who brings living water. You come to me, you'll never thirst again. And we live in a thirsty world. Have you ever noticed that? He's the only one who brings life. And how's he do that? He does it through what he did for us on the cross. We're going to take some time right now to celebrate what Jesus did for us on the cross. Um, ushers are going to come forward here in a few minutes after I get done praying. We're going to pass some trays. We're going to, there's going to be some bread in there. And when we take that bread, you may even want to break it because it reminds us that Jesus' body was broken for us. And there's going to be some juice, and, and we're going to look at that for a second. We're going to remember his blood that was poured out on our behalf. Why? Because Jesus didn't come to this world to condemn us. He came here to save us. And he did that by paying a price 
for us on our behalf because we've all sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. And we can try our best to be good enough all day long and we'll never be good enough. So instead what he did was he cut us a sweet deal. And he said, you know what? I'll be good enough on your behalf. The Bible says it this way. He became sin who knew no sin so that you and I might become the righteousness of God. So that one day when we stand before the Father, if he looks at us and goes, why should I let you in? We can go, because of him. Because of your son Jesus. Because of what he did for me. He gave me this great gift. It's called grace. The Father will go, I know. Come on in. So, you may be in here and going, I, I've never done this communion thing before, but do you believe that what Jesus did count, counts for you? And take that bread and take that juice and know that you now have an intimate relationship with our Heavenly Father who created you. And if you've maybe known this for your whole life or for a long, long time, then maybe this would be just a great reminder for you of exactly what Jesus did for you when he died on the cross. So let's take some time, let's create some space where we can celebrate this. Let's pray. God, come before you, a lot of us with a, a lot of baggage in our past from things that we've done or things that were done to us. God, a lot of us, honestly, our baggage is from, from church. And God, we're really um, not sure about who you are because the people that say they follow you have been really, really weird to us or mean to us or cruel to us or whatever that is. God, some of us, we've been in church our whole lives and it kind of just feels like our life has dried up. And we've heard that verse that you're living water and burdened people and weary people can come to you. We've heard it a million times, but it just doesn't seem like reality in our life right now. So God, I guess I'm asking you, we've tried to create a space where people can meet you and bump into you and encounter you. So would you show up? Would you reveal yourself to us in unique ways in all of our hearts this evening? And we, would we be able to see you for who you are as the God who sent his son to die for us so that we could have a relationship with you? God, we love you. In Jesus' name, amen.